Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you for the introduction and, and welcome. I, w- I was looking, we have in our corporate template various pictures that you can use. So this one seemed sort of vaguely appropriate for technology needed for your next smartphone. So we've got Mr. VR there. We have to start someplace. So one place to start is smartphones, when you think about it, are actually pretty amazing. So a current generation one can actually do trillions of calculations per second while consuming only a few watts. And if you take a look at other computers, they are in fact the most power efficient computers in history. So if you compare a smartphone, say with a data center server, it's about 10x better in terms of power performance. And if you compare it with a supercomputer, it's about 100x better. So again, they're, they're amazing things. Lots of people own them. People do apps. And we, we get a bit of a worrisome statistic at the bottom. 47% of Americans said they couldn't live without their smartphone. I told the statistic to my daughter and she said the 53% were lying. <laughs> there we go. Okay, and smartphones have definitely changed the world. So there's me standing in front of some piece of ancient technology in England. Payphones and landlines are obsolete. And so are things like musical or music players, personal computers, video game consoles. I, I started assembling a list of things that you don't really need anymore. Video cameras, cameras in general, televisions, books, magazines. You don't even really need money anymore because you can use your smartphone as money. So then I thought, well, what are the most obscure things that I could come up with? So I came up with mirrors. So people use these things as mirrors and thermostats. And then the the other weird one that I can do is if I pull this thing up, I can actually just by pressing there. Now I'm into it. I can control the lawn sprinklers in my house in California from this podium. So I can see how they're doing. Oh, look, we're going to water pretty soon. Hmm. Cool. So again, this is, this is ridiculous when you think about it. The idea that thousands of miles away, I could monitor my lawn. You know, this is, again, something that you can do with your phone. Besides all this, smartphones are the world's most popular AI device. And even if you think, well, wait a minute, most AI runs in clouds and data centers and so on. That's true. But most of the interfaces are actually running on smartphones. So The IDC people did a calculation and they estimated that 90% of the world's AI runs on smartphones, at least if not the actual AI, the interface to it. And you can see some of the applications up there, fingerprint identity, speech recognition, and so on are all forms of AI. All right, so that's all very interesting. It's also good to step back a little bit and say, well, where did all this start from? So if we take a look at this 1998 phone and compare it with a phone of today. So back in 1998, you had a little screen and was green. it was green and black and you could play Snake, which was a fun game. How many people here ever played Snake? All right then. <laughs> so Snake is fun. Now you've got a thing that is significantly more powerful. So instead of a a 47 by 84 block display, we have a full HD display. We have 
this monstrous CPU that has eight cores, 64 bits, and so on, and huge amounts of storage, huge amounts of memory, graphics, ML, all these things are built into this thing. So how did this thing get here? That's really what we're going to go through in this talk. Where did this thing come from and where will it go next? So when we look at where things go next, we have a challenge. So here's a quote. Prediction is difficult, especially about the future. This quote is attributed to Niels Bohr. If you look it up on the internet, it's also attributed to Yogi Berra, and then it's also attributed to a variety of other people. So you should always be like William Shakespeare said and check your internet quotes before you put them up there. Predictions can also be of differing value. So if I take the prediction that the weather in California will be exactly the same tomorrow as it is today, this prediction is roughly 90% accurate, but it's utterly useless because the only days that I care about are the 10% days where something changes. I believe Abu Dhabi is similar. I looked at the weather and it's scheduled to have a thunderstorm on Wednesday. So that's a good thing to know. And if you use the, the, the forecast of tomorrow is just like today, don't worry about it, then most of the time you'll be right, but most of the, the, the times you're wrong will be the ones you wish you were right. There's a related prediction in technology, which is, oh, that new idea probably won't work. And that's true. It probably won't. However, again, those are not the idea, that, that's not the point. The point is that some fraction of the new ideas do work, and those are the ones we're interested in. Finally, there's the idea that maybe people who are just super clever can come up with predictions and do a better job than other people. And if you look at the track record of experts predicting things versus amateurs predicting things, it's not, the experts aren't really that much better. So there's an actual science behind this. And what they concluded, they studied people who actually did better than experts and better than amateurs. And the way that they succeeded was they broke problems into smaller pieces and then took reasonable extrapolations of those small pieces. And that's what helped them predict the future. Okay, fair enough. There's another relevant concept in this space, which is when you make technology predictions, you often fall into this generally right, specifically wrong mode. So 15-ish years ago, generally the consensus was that an internet-connected cell phone was a good thing and that people should build them. And here's three different variants of internet-connected cell phones that existed around that time. And you'll notice that most of these phones didn't really go anywhere. How many people, you know, we'll just have another quiz. How many owned one of the phones in this picture, at least one? How many owned all of them? All right. <laughs> well done. Okay, but as we all know, there was a certain smartphone that came in and took over. And the, the thing that this phone had that the other ones didn't have was a, an app store. Because pretty much all the other properties, touch screen, icons, and so on, were present in one or more of the other phones. So again, it's easy to be generally right and specifically wrong. And so we will again assume that for the purposes of this talk, the things that I'm going to tell you are probably in the right direction. They may not be exactly right. If they were going to be exactly right, I would be out talking to venture capitalists instead of you all. So <laughs> there we go. It's also good to look at what's inside your smartphone right now. 
So if you look at it, again, the, the main purpose of it really is there's a lot of audio and video. So it does some amazing graphics. It does has screens and things. It also has communication. So it has radios, multiple of them. GPS is a radio, for example. It also has a modem, which stands for modulator, demodulator, which is the means by which the radio actually communicates. Battery matters, memory processing software, all these pieces are important, and we'll look a little bit at where they all come from. The place we're going to start, though, is with this thing. This is a computer from 1966. Does anybody know what it is? That's correct. It is the Apollo Guidance Computer. So this thing was uh, put on the moon lander. It weighed roughly 70 pounds. And it's notable, in addition to having gone to the moon, for being the first computer that was built out of silicon-integrated circuits. So they looked like the little black things up there on the left. So those are, th those are integrated circuits circa 1966. The ones in that picture before then are the, the ones from now. To, to kind of elaborate on this a little bit, I took this catalog. So this is a, a catalog my neighbor had. It's a 1967 catalog on ICs. And then I took, you, you'll notice the things in the middle look roughly like the ones that were in the guidance computer on the, the picture on the right there. So I took a look at this and I thought, well, what would happen if you built a modern smartphone chip using the ICs in this catalog? And I concluded you would, new, in order to build a seven nanometer smartphone chip, you would need roughly 300 million of the components in this book. And if you put them together, they would consume around 16 megawatts of power. And it would occupy about 12 football fields in terms of the, the rough area of the thing. But interestingly enough, despite all those other the wild features, it would only run about 600 times slower. So... Power, power and performance scaled a lot. And what, what do we call that? Well, we call it Moore's Law, surprisingly, given the title of the talk. All right, so what is Moore's Law? So this was a paper that Gordon Moore published in 1965. At the time, he was working for Fairchild. Later, he went on to be part of the founding of Intel and so on and became a, a guru in this whole space. But he made the observation in 1965 that the complexity of minimum component cost has increased at a rate of roughly two per year. So basically the amount of stuff cramming more components, you could cram twice as many components onto an integrated circuit in 1965 as you could in 1964. And that was twice the number you could do in 1963 and so on. And he made the observation that this can be expected to continue. So you can summarize Moore's law in two graphs. So the, these are the two figures from the picture or from the paper, the one on the right is the one that's often shown when people say, here's the doubling of complexity every year, and that goes off into the future. The one on the left, though, is actually the economic piece of it, which is that, that those little U-shaped curves that move downwards and to the right, the minimum point on that U-shaped curve is the ideal density to build a chip because at that point, the cost per component is minimal for the number of components that you get. So the blue scaling is Moore's Law scaling. Sometimes, especially nowadays, when you read Moore's Law isn't dead, it's still going on, they're actually doing the, right, the, the red arrow, which is going up and to the right there, which even in Moore's day, you could squish more stuff onto the chip 
but the act of doing that made the chip far more expensive than it was otherwise. So the blue curve is Moore's law. The red curve is just making your chip more expensive. Again, Moore's Law has brought us all kinds of things, the internet, personal computers. Jetliners was an interesting one because most of the, the newer ones are fly-by-wire, which means that if they didn't have a whole bunch of fancy computers, they couldn't fly. We have miscellaneous objects like these ones in your, uh, in your kitchen. And then the, the thing on the right is from the, the refrigerator, or actually, actually the freezer, I, I think, in, uh, in the room where I'm staying here. And if you... If you look at anything like that that has a status light, if it has a status light, it has a microcontroller in it somewhere. So things have computers in them that you wouldn't expect. You would not expect the, the refrigerator to have a computer in it, and yet it does. And if you look at the computer that's in that refrigerator, it's almost certainly significantly more complicated than the one that was used to land the moon lander. So... Again, they just put the even a trivial thing that lights up some lights on a display on a fridge is actually an extremely complicated computer by standards of 50 years ago. We have a way of measuring this. So we use the, what's called a process name. So you may have heard of seven nanometer processes or three nanometer or three micron. <clears throat> the picture or the little news article down there at the bottom says Apple's 5G phones will be powered by 5 nanometer chips. I have no idea if that's true or not, but I just picked it up because it was a recent headline that's had a process name in it. All right, well, what do these numbers mean? What is 5 nanometer? And the, the, the fact is that in a 5 nanometer or a 7 nanometer process, if you had a tiny 5 nanometer ruler and you measured any random object that you could find, you would never find one that was 5 nanometers. On the other hand, if you went in a 3 micron chip, you could actually find things that were 3 microns. So what's happened is that it used to refer to a physical property and now it's just a name. The, the shoe analogy I find to be useful. So if you have a size 7 shoe, it's smaller than a size 10 shoe, which is smaller than a size 14 shoe, but it's not smaller in any linear or measurable way. It's just smaller. So that's essentially the way that these process names work. They don't refer to any physical quantity, but they are smaller. Okay, fair enough. Where do we go now? Well, let's take a look inside one of these chips. So here's a chip. Here's something... This is, a, this is the first ARM chip. So this was in 1985. It was in 3 micron CMOS, which means that the transistors were 3 micrometers wide. So that actually was true back in 1985, which means that at this resolution, you can actually kind of see them. So you can, let's see. Yeah, there. So you can see little blobs here, these little pixels. Those are actual transistors. And they're actual wires. You can see wires in this chip. So that's why I put it up there, because back in 1985, in sort of visual displays of chips, you could actually see things. If we moved this chip and said, well, let's redo this 1985 chip in 19 or, or 2019 technology, it would look roughly that size of that little dot there. And I think actually the dot is too big. I couldn't figure out how to make a smaller dot. So this gives us, again, some idea of the progress of Moore's Law. Things shrink and shrink and shrink to just unimaginably tiny dimensions. The other thing to notice is processor, chips that are called processors actually contain not just processing. They also contain large amounts of memory. So we took a picture. This is, a, this is an AMD chip. And if you just look at that yellow rectangle in the center there, 
that's not processor, that's memory. So you say, okay, well, there's some memory in the center and then the rest of it is processing. Well, let's take another square. So here's a square somewhere else. The stuff on the right, that's also memory. So you say, okay, well, the rest of that, the other stuff on the left was logic. Well, no, that one right there, that's memory too. So there's kind of a you know, fractal memory in these computer chips where there's, just, there's memory every which way in addition to processing. And keep that in mind because it will, it will turn out to be important later. Memory in itself has also followed Moore's law. So the thing on the left there is called a core rope memory. That was the one that was used inside the, the Apollo system. It's called a core rope because it literally is a magnetized rope. And they wound it through there. And it had 36,000 words of memory, which was a lot by 1960-something standards. The thing on the right was a... I was cleaning up my office recently, and I came across this flash disk. So this flash disk is a 20-megabyte flash disk. Wow. With that disk, I can hold almost an entire song or maybe three pictures or something like that. So not very much. On the other hand, with this thing, so this is a more recent one, this one has a thousand times more storage than the flash disk there, which was 500 times more storage than the rope. So again, Moore's law has advanced immeasurably. We can look at how that happened. So the, the flash cell, this is uh, one of the early papers on an actual single transistor flash memory. If you take that was from the 1980s. If you take that transistor and you imagine that we're going to kind of turn it sideways and then we're going to run up a whole stack of them, that's what this is here. So this is called vertical NAND flash. So each of these little layers produces a transistor. And that's how you get these gigabytes worth of stuff on there because you're actually, instead of having the transistors all flat and spread out the, the way that they were in uh, the pictures I showed earlier, now there's a whole bunch of them stacked vertically. For fun, you can actually compare these things. So, uh, so here's a red blood cell, and the little blob there, that's an actual size relative to the blood cell, 7 nanometer memory bit cell. So how many of these bit cells can you put on there? You can put about 5,000 of them across a red blood cell. Now, the human genome is about 2 terabytes or 20 megabytes in compressed format, and it also fits into these sorts of dimensions. So that shows us that even though we've scaled storage immensely, we still haven't gone anywhere close to what's possible you know, using biological systems that exist inside all of us. So there's a lot, of, a lot of opportunity for further advancement in storage, even though we're already seeming like we're at some limits. Another way to look at this is to compare these things with a virus. So here's a virus. It's a bacteriophage, which if you study viruses, you probably know what it does. And I did for 10 minutes when I made this slide, and now I've forgotten. You can tell me afterwards. Whatever it does... This is a seven nanometer FinFET, or there's one and there's another one. So these are transistors in modern processes, and these are on the same scale as that. So you can see, again, that these objects are really, really tiny. We're making them virus scale. We're also making them atomic scale. A silicon atom is roughly 0.2 nanometers. It depends what crystal it lives in. These kinds of little dots that you can see in these pictures, those are atoms. So there's only so much shrinking that you can do. If you shrink things down to below the dimensions of atoms, then we're going to have to go into some sci-fi realm in order to make actual stuff. Okay, so we're going to move forward. But before we go forward, it's important to talk about panic curves. 
Panic curves are a useful device if you want to get people worried about something. This particular panic curve came from Intel about 20 years ago. And again, we see, well, let's follow it up. Moore's law, da 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 da, da. We passed hot plate. These things are generating more heat per air surface area than hot plates. And if we continue on this trend, we're going to get to a nuclear reactor, and then we'll get to rocket nozzle. So when you see a panic curve, the first thing that you realize is that we're clearly not going to get to nuclear reactor or rocket nozzle, are we? So we're going to have to do something different. And in fact, that's what happened. So what happened was instead of making single cores hotter and hotter and hotter, people started building multi-core systems. And that's why your 2019 phone has eight cores in it instead of one. Okay, but then what happens if we extend this thing further? Well, then you get to the surface of the sun. And over about now, if we extract kind of go along here on this axis, we'd be right about here. So this is where we should be, right at the point of a high power laser. So I didn't know if done, I didn't know before I started playing with these numbers that high power lasers are actually produce a temperature that's hotter than the surface of the sun. Not hotter than the interior of the sun, that's harder, but hotter than the surface. Okay, so does that mean that we're in panic time? Because now we've got this thing where we're shrinking things down. They're the size of viruses. They're tiny little things. We can see the atoms and pictures of them. Should we start to panic? Well, maybe. So let's see. The, the distance between nodes. So the, the one year that Gordon Moore observed stretched out a little bit to about 18 months. And then it stretched out a little bit to two years. And now it's stretched out a little bit more depending on how you define nodes and cadence and so on. But it's kind of on the two to three and maybe four-ish time frame. The feature scaling is also slowing. And that's where the, the discrepancy comes because the node names and so on. So it used to be that when you made a new node, it was faster, smaller, and lower power. And now it's more like pick one of those and it'll be that. And this has interesting implications because again, back in the 90s, if you were designing a computer chip and you said, I have this brilliant architectural idea, I'm going to do this really neat thing. I'm going to publish it at ICCD and everybody will love it. The problem is that it's going to take me twice as long to design my computer as, you know, it usually does. So you diligently start and start going away. Meanwhile, so instead of taking a year to design your chip, it was going to take you two. Meanwhile, your competitor design team just sat around and watched movies and, you know, did nothing for a year. And then they decided that they would start designing their chip. The problem was that Moore's Law had advanced in that year, and so their chip would wind up being better than your chip, even though they really hadn't done anything except copy their last design. And that process has really come to an end, that now scaling things are not, scaled objects are not automatically better than non-scaled ones. And so this is a secret opportunity for architects that we'll talk about some more. The other thing to talk about is that we have, from the fab standpoint, I, I, I'm quoting this anonymous research fab engineer who said that the options range from the one hand from wildly impossible or wildly improbable to the other hand, they're impossible. So there's a lot of hard stuff out there. All right. How do you pattern all this stuff? So how, how do you make these things? You actually have to print them. The way that you're printing them right now is with this tool called an extreme ultraviolet. When they first started working on this technology, they called it X-ray lithography. But they decided that X-ray lithography sounded scary, whereas extreme ultraviolet sounds cool. Basically the same light, but it's extreme ultraviolet sounds better. 
All right, so what does this thing do? It costs a billion dollars. It's, it's a monstrous object. We can actually look at it. One of the reasons that it costs a billion dollars is that it has these mirrors in it that are unbelievably complicated. So let's look at the mirrors. So the, the, if you look at this mirror, the flatness of it is it has to be flat within 75 micron variation. You say, oh, 75 micron variation. That's the width of roughly a, a hair. But it's 75 micron variation across Germany. So imagine that you're going to build a, a mirror that takes up the whole country of Germany and it cannot vary more than the width of a human hair. It's mind-bogglingly complicated technology, which is, again, why it's mind-bogglingly expensive. And the reason that it has to do that is because it uses this Bragg reflector, which requires that these layers be perfectly parallel in order to work. All right, well, that's neat. Where does it go next? Well, now you can go to high numeric aperture EUV. So the first generation tool ships in three Boeing 747s, and this one is bigger than that. So, hmm, that's interesting. Oh, well, here's a, what do we got here? Well, we have this Navy ship. Well, what does the Navy ship do? Well, this, this Navy ship has a laser that can shoot missiles out of the sky. So, oh, that's a pretty nasty laser, right? The laser in this thing is bigger and nastier. So we have base, what amounts to this EUV machine has a, effectively a death ray that exists inside of it. So you what you do in order to print a pattern on a silicon is you take your death ray and what you do is you blast a tiny drop of tin. And when you blast the tiny drop of tin into smithereens, the radiation that's produced from that is coincidentally the light that you need to illuminate stuff. Now, you'll notice if you think about this with an engineering mindset for a minute, hey, wait a minute, if I'm dropping a bunch of tin there, it's going to make a big mess. Right? So in order to keep it from making a big mess, you blow a hurricane. So what we have is you drop a tiny drop of tin in a hurricane, hit it with a death ray, then the, mad, the waves that spread out from that bounce off the million dollar Germany mirror and eventually hit the silicon. And that's how you build stuff. This is probably the most complicated piece of technology that human beings have ever made. And yet here we are, three people have ordered one. We're going to build them. <laughs> All right, so what are they going to build? Well, they're going to build something. But the challenge is in, in transistor land, the cupboard is almost bare. We're kind of down. We got, went through you know, CMOS and NMOS, and now we're down to FinFETs. And now the last thing left in there is nanowires. So nanowires are these things that are here. And essentially what you'll see, if you remember the FinFET picture, there's kind of a FinFET picture. If you eat away underneath them like that, then you actually produce these multiple conducting objects. And these things are the gates for the transistors. So this is theoretically pretty close to the best gate you can make. And if, feel free to go read that paper if you want to learn more about it. All right, so we're kind of running out of transistors, but there's some other things that we might be able to do instead. <clears throat> so maybe we can start building them out of more exotic metals. So how many of you guys have heard of graphene? Graphene, exciting, right? So graphene is a two-dimensional material. It's made out of carbon. The properties of these two-dimensional materials are very interesting and can potentially make some interesting devices. Graphene isn't really that good for transistors because it doesn't have a band gap. But you can build these things now using combinations of simulation and so forth. This is a particular paper from last year, and there are 51 different 
2D materials introduced in this one paper alone. So there, there's now these massive ability to look at new materials, to analyze them in terms of what their band gap is or their dielectric function or whatever. And that allows people to build some <clears throat> really interesting new stuff. At some point, one of these materials is going to turn out to be the next big thing in transistors. All right, so that's all super cool and interesting, but what does it have to do with cell phones? You told me it was going to be my next big cell phone. Well, let's go back to that and start off with, if I have a computer of some kind, how do I make it better? Essentially, the value of one of these things is the functionality over the cost, and we can spread the cost out and say, well, the cost is some combination of money and energy and time, and depending on where it is, it might actually be size and so on. We have some constraints. So one of the key constraints that face in developing these things is the speed of light. So a 3 gigahertz processor like the one in that cell phone that I showed earlier the, the, means that three, one three billionth of a second is what it, time it takes for one clock cycle. So a nanosecond, this is an easy way to remember a nanosecond. A nanosecond is about this big. So a beam of light will go from here to there in a nanosecond. It only has a third of a nanosecond to go in this picture. So for the, the current generation smartphone, everything has to happen in the time it takes light to go from here to there. In order to do that, there's a whole pile of challenges that come up. One of the biggest challenges <clears throat> is actually getting to the memory. Hang on, I'm going to grab my little sip of water here. Always prepare. The people who put water out in these talks are very helpful. <clears throat> so if we take computer memory and we start thinking about it in human terms. So the fundamental processing memory is called a register. So a register is like a book. And you've got a book on your desk and you read it. Now, sometimes the things that you want are not on your desk. So then you have to go to your bookshelf. And that's kind of like cash. So cash takes you a few seconds to get to. At, again, this is human scale. And you have a shelf or two of books there. If you want more books, then you have to go further away. So in this case, you might have to go to the library. Um, this university is pretty compact, so the library is probably not far. On the other hand, where you know, I used to live, the library was farther. Flash, on the other hand, is <clears throat> instead of being minutes or hours away, the flash is more like days or weeks away. But on the other hand, it holds a whole lot more. So we can have, instead of a library, we can have a whole container ship. And then the last piece of this is the cloud. If I send for information on the cloud, now it's going to take months, effectively, from the computer standpoint. Asking the cloud for information means it's essentially gone forever. It will come back. It will come on a nice sailing vessel, and it'll be full of exotic things and be exciting. But nonetheless, it's far away. So we want to speed this up. So how do we do that? <clears throat> there are various ways to do that. The most simple one is to be efficient and predictable in memory access because that, <clears throat> that allows you to guess. So instead of saying, well, you wanted to have this book, and then a few minutes later say, oh, you wanted this other book. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know you wanted that book. Huh. If you know what order people are going to go through the books, then you can get them in order. You can also get closer to the memory and you can get better memory. So again, if we look outside of smartphones for a minute, in high-end 
servers, they start to use this thing called high bandwidth memory, which is over there on the right-hand side of the picture. And in this case, we've stacked multiple DRAM die up on top of the logic die, which is then connected via high-speed thing to other logic die. So this allows us, instead of going, essentially it means that we're now living next to the library, or maybe we're living on top of the library, and that allows us to get these books faster. So that if, we, if we extrapolate this to future technologies, we're going to make this stuff super scale. So now what happens? Well, we have registers. So instead of having one book, we can fill, the, fill our desk with books. And then we can build bookcases all around the desk. We can move into the library, put the library on a ship, and sit in a harbor. So now <clears throat> we have, via these new technologies of stacking everything up or moving it all together, we have the potential capability to get really, really fast access to memory. So there's a lot of progress being done in this. So I went and I asked a couple of foundry people, so the, the people who manufacture these chips, when people come to you and talk about 3D, do they ever talk about the same thing twice? And the answer is not yet. Every time they go there, they want a slightly different thing than they wanted last time, and they want a slightly different thing than their competitors, which means that we're in kind of the Cambrian explosion era, where everybody is trying different things, something is going to happen, something will eventually win. There's some properties that will matter for whatever wins, so whatever wins is going to have to be scalable and modular so that it works on mobile phones, it works in data centers, it works in cars, it might even work in supercomputers. It will have to have commercial tool support because otherwise no one can design it. It's got to enable the ability to do all these different compute techniques. And meanwhile, it has to solve memory bottlenecks, I.O. bottlenecks, and have good answers on test yield and all the rest of it. So again, Cambrian explosion is the thing to think about. If you look at the actual Cambrian explosion, so this is a picture from the Smithsonian, the thing that, that might be most interesting to us is this little wormy thing in the front. So that's called a pikea. So that, that little wormy thing is, the, or is essentially an ancestor of all vertebrates. So you wouldn't necessarily, if you were going to pick in that thing and say, which of these things would turn out to be the most interesting at a lecture in Abu Dhabi in 2019? You might not, you might want to pick this one. This one's cool. It's got a big claws and things, or these guys, there seem to be a lot of them, but it actually turned out to be that one. So there you go. <clears throat> it might be hard to pick the correct winner at this point. Okay, so what do people want in their phones? So if I want to know what, I, I mean, what people want in my phone, I never look at me because I don't know anything. I instead ask my daughter. She knows what she wants in a phone. So here's what she did with, you know, she sends these things. You know, here's, here's my grandson, and he goes and you can make them with these little emoji things. This is an example of machine learning in action. So what it's doing is it's taking a video feed and it's monitoring his head position, it's monitoring his eyes, and you'll notice it even gets the, the sort of funky curve he has with his mouth when he's talking, and he gets it right. It's doing that <clears throat> using a, an awful lot of computation, but it's, it's still able to do that in what amounts to real-ish time, which then lets him send little messages to me, which I find very cute. Okay, so there's, some, there's a whole bunch of stuff in machine learning that's really important. So, what do I know about machine learning? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. This is my excellent AI adventure. So, back in the mid-80s, I worked on AI. 
at, at a place called the Alberta Research Council, which was, it was actually, I think, founded for a similar purpose to some of the universities in Abu Dhabi in that Alberta's economy is very dependent on energy and oil, and they were trying to figure out, could we use machine learning and AI back in the 80s to improve our economy? Um, we worked on a bunch of different stuff. There's kind of the, the lead contingent of Canadian AI researchers in the 80s. Of those people, only one of them really stuck with it. So her name is Lisa McElraith, and she's a big wig in AI at the University of Toronto. But the rest of us went on to do other things. I, in particular, went on to do VLSI of various sorts. Nonetheless, I still have some sort of street cred in ML, maybe. So what makes a good machine learning problem? Really, if you look at it, the things that machine learning is good at are problems that are bounded. So there's some kind of set of answers. The solution can be graded objectively. So the question of, is this a bird? Well, yes, it's a bird. That's an object. There's no, there's no arguing over whether this may or may not be a bird. It's objectively a bird or it's not. There's also needs to be plenty of data and that can be either trained, you know, pre-trained, you can use the things to train themselves and so forth. And it needs to be difficult to describe in a program. So these are all the, the, the qualities that make things good machine learning candidates. There's some, still some ambiguity that comes out. So for example, this is clearly a picture of a bird. Is it also a picture of a frog? Well, it kinda is, right? That may be a former frog. This frog is about to become lunch. Nonetheless, there he is, it's a frog. The, the, I ran this through, Microsoft has an automatic ML labeling for PowerPoint, so you can just say, it, it says generate some auto text for this. So it, it came up with bird in a field of grass, which seems pretty right, right? It, did not, it decided there was no frog in the picture though. Okay, so we wanna do some machine learning. The way that we do machine learning is we add accelerators of various forms into our computers. So we take a CPU, a central classic processing unit. A first order accelerator would be a GPU, which does graphics processing. Some of the more recent ones are these neural processors, which actually are specifically targeted to machine learning algorithms. And then if you had one specific thing you wanted to do really well, you might actually build a single function chip to do that. So again, we can have an entire lecture on this or you can ask questions about it later. But the basics of it are that as you move from left to right in this picture, you become less flexible, but more efficient. And efficient means speed and power. Flexibility includes adaptability and programmability. So we can see this in action over the years. So here's, uh, here's some cell phone chips or smartphone chips from 45 nanometer, 20 nanometer, seven nanometer. So that's kind of like current generation, four-ish years ago, eight-ish years ago. Now, you can see the, the evolution of these things that, that, first of all, these are roughly the, or to scale, which means that the chips are getting slightly smaller over time, but they're basically staying the same size. Now, remember that you can cram twice as many components onto them each generation. So that means that even though these thing, this thing is physically smaller than that thing, it still has roughly four-ish times the amount of transistors on it as that one. So then you can see, well, here's a CPU, and then here's a CPU over there. And you say, well, wait a minute, that CPU doesn't look four times smaller than the last CPU. And it's not, because when they made the new one, 
they said, oh, we've actually got all the spare room. We can build a processor that's twice as complicated as the one we had last time. And then we can put two of them down there, and they still take roughly the same area as one of them on the previous node. So that's interesting. They also decided that because they had all this extra space, they could add some graphics processing. Now you move forward to a couple of generations more, and this time the CPUs stayed roughly the same complexity, so they shrunk quite a bit. This one is about four times smaller than that one, and it's about four times smaller because that's the number of transistors. It's basically the same transistor count. The GPUs <clears throat> kind of basically, again, they increase the complexity of the thing because it takes roughly the same area as the one before. And then they added this NPU, this neural processing unit, mach dedicated machine learning processor. So you can see that over time, what people have been doing is they've been taking the space that Moore's Law gives them, and they've been adding more complexity and more interesting functions to this. So we can do all sorts of stuff now with machine learning. So we can, machine learning can beat the world's best Go players. Anybody hadn't heard that before? No, all right, everybody knows that one. But can you, you can beat Go players, but what else can you do? There, there's a joke, it was a guy named Emo Phillips who was again a comedian back in the 80s who said, yeah, a computer beat me at chess once, but it didn't do too well at kickboxing. What other games can things play? So, well, here's my grandson again. How do you play with a four-year-old? How many of you have four-year-olds or know four-year-olds? Yeah, four-year-old games are incomprehensible. So in this particular game that he's showing me, he's dressed up as Aquaman, but he's doing Spider-Man because you could turn into Spider-Man sometimes during the game if you needed to, and then sometimes I was on the same side as him, and sometimes I was on the opposite side, which mostly depended on his whim as we were playing this stuff. So again, okay, let's, let's try this with a machine learning type approach. The Calvin and Hobbes comic strip <clears throat> formalized this concept back in the, the day with this game called Calvin Ball. And Calvin Ball was essentially, they, they made up rules on the spot. So here's Calvin saying, there's a new rule. If you don't touch the 30-yard base wicket with the flag, you have to hop on one foot. And the rules could be added and changed and so on. And then meanwhile, on the other hand, here's AlphaGo. So when we look at complex programs, the Go-type problems have a fixed goal, they have fixed rules, there's a fixed interpretation of the rules, and if you play the game again, you get the same answer. Calvin Ball-type games are different. The goal changes, the rules change, the interpretation of the rules change, and if you replay the game, you'll have a completely different result. So this turns out to be an AI challenge, because remember, bounded challenge was one of the things that was, was important for machine learning. So 40 plus years ago, David Marr expressed that in uh, this definition of there's a type one problem, which is clean. The problem has a known method to solve it. There's the pro and so there's actually a simple way to describe the problem. And then you can then go and solve it. So Fourier transforms go and things like that. The other ones are messy. And these are ones where as far as anyone can tell, this the solution and the interaction of the things is the simplest description of the problem. So protein folding and Calvin ball are in that category. And the, the challenge that David Marr pointed out in 1977 and remains true is that you can never be sure for a given problem whether it has a type 1 solution or not. It would be nice if it did, but does it? We don't know. 
Machine learning is a conv uh, you know, convolutional neural nets are the basis of most machine learning at this point. They are a, a type one solution. This is a description of how they work. You have some sort of neural net, you put it into a compiler, it produces some code for a processor, and then you fire that off into an NPU. That's a description of the solution of a problem that's relatively concise. But what about other pieces of AI? If we look at human beings, and we we'll assume for the sake of argument that human beings are intelligent, since we like to think of ourselves that way, what kinds of problems do we create? Well, we're, we're endlessly creating these Calvin ball type problems. So, you know, a, a good Calvin ball problem for a four-year-old is when is bedtime? One for, for the rest of us, and what's the meaning of life or intelligence or even something as simple as does this circuit work? Well, what do you mean by work? What do you mean by circuit? What do you mean? <clears throat> is this chip verified to be secure? Same question. What do you mean verified? What do you mean by secure? Mm. And you can debate these things quite endlessly. So people like to create Calvin Ball. We, we take things that appear to be simple questions and make them complicated. Here's some other things, though, that we can do in the meantime. So this is bokeh, which is a fancy Japanese word that means blur. So when you have a word like blur, blur sounds boring. Bokeh sounds exciting. So there's a picture. So essentially it means that uh, you take a picture of a rose, the sky blurs, and even the leaves kind of blur. So it's, it's a cool effect. It's very, very artistic. If we're going to replace our cameras and replace our multi-thousand dollar lenses with our cell phones, we need to make sure that they're able to do some of these things. So the, the way that you do that is called computational photography. So here's a picture my friend Glenn took of a glass of wine. He's sitting on a rooftop in Barcelona, which I believe that he gave me this picture just to say, I was in Barcelona and you weren't. But nonetheless, there's a picture. <clears throat> so you can see that the algorithm creates this bokeh effect by blurring the background. So this is the, the pic camera only took one picture and then it blurred it. However, because cameras are not still, there's, there's still some bugs to be worked out. <laughs> hmm. And the, the, the reason that, that, this, that the algorithm had trouble with this is it's not really sure what to do with the glass. Is the glass in the foreground or the background? Parts of the glass are in the foreground, parts of the glass are in the background. It's actually a really hard problem algorithmically. It turns out that we are not the first generation to have encountered this. So I found this picture. This is in an art museum in Germany. And this guy who painted this picture just basically was saying to all the other artists on the planet at the time, I can paint this and you can't. So look, he's got a wine glass. And then he's got another one that he's kind of bokehed out of existence in the background there, right? And then this one is actually broken. So there's fragments of glass, fragments of pie, reflections of the glass into the goblet, into the tray, into the thing. This is an amazingly complicated picture. And he did this just to prove that it could be done. But we can look at it just as an example of perception and why perception is hard. So what is perception is hard. Recognition is easy. Again, if you feed this into the... Uh, Microsoft system, it says a glass of wine sitting on a table. That appears to be correct. That is, in fact, exactly what that is. But if we want to do the magical bokeh effect, we have to be able to figure out what's foreground and what's background. That requires that we perceive not just what this picture is, but what the picture actually means at some level. And we can even get harder. 
So the scene perception, what is this? Why did Glenn take this picture? Is it some sort of romantic dinner? Was he engaged in wine tasting? We don't know. But if, for an artificial intelligence system to get perception, it would have to start having answers to some of these questions. And if it got really clever, it could start getting things like intent. Whose glass is this? Can I sample from it? Who's, what's the photographer trying to convey? The sample question is interesting. So, I mean, because it's, it's a hugely complicated question, even if you know the people. So, for example, if I am sitting at a dinner with my wife and she has a glass of wine, can I sample from this glass of wine is not a question with a yes or no answer. It's a very complicated question. If she says, try my wine, then it's easy. But if, you know, I just wonder, I wonder if your wine tastes the same as mine, you know? That's probably not going to go over well. Or I finished mine. Can I have yours? That also doesn't go over well. <laughs> okay, so perception is hard, but we need to solve perception because when we solve perception, we can get to some more interesting questions in this space. One that we think about a lot is uh, driving. So is driving Calvin Ball or is it Go? It seems like, so everybody thought five years ago, or actually this is now seven years ago, everybody thought that it would be really easy to do. Turns out it wasn't. Um, Dubai is not far from being the first city, at least according to the, the news a couple of weeks ago, so that's good. This picture is an example of why it's hard. So this is a picture I took outside a hotel in Chicago. All of the cars that are parked in this picture are parked illegally, including the ones at the curb. And so somehow or other, you have to figure all this out. The drivers, existing cab drivers and Uber drivers kind of figure out how to manage triple parking. They had quadruple parking going at one point, and I didn't get my camera out in time to get a picture of it. This car is a police car. You'll notice that it doesn't care about all these cars. <laughs> they have better things to do with their day than police you know, parking at a hotel. But nonetheless, this is an extremely complicated AI problem that requires a huge amount of perception to solve correctly. <coughs> the way that we usually solve these problems, the way we fix Calvin Ball is we move the goalposts. So instead of solving the hard problem, we're going to solve an easy one. We declare some subset of the problem to be the hard part. We define a metric for success, build a solution, iterate, and do better. And that's basically how engineering and how computer science has worked for a long time. That's what we do. That's how we make things go. A problem that we're going to start to focus on, so uh, what are the kinds of things your next generation smartphone are, are being designed for? One of the things that's being designed for is artificial reality. So what can we do in AR space? So I thought I would give you some demos of things that you could do. So suppose you're wandering through the scene and suddenly you, your phone says, hey, I found that Rob guy. He works for ARM. There's a picture of him right there. Now, <clears throat> that's facial recognition, right? So that's not too hard of an AI problem. But because this thing is operating, we could actually hypothesize that it could do more stuff. So for example, it might be able to figure out just by looking at me how tall I was and it might even be able to guess how much I weigh. But, hmm, now it's starting to get creepy. Before it was just interesting, now it's getting weird. But it could get worse, because it could also have more information, right? He thinks he's taller. Well, no. Boy, he seems to have packed on the pounds of there. Also, he owes you $5. <laughs> Talks too much. Should you hide? <laughs> So AR could help you in a variety of different ways. 
But AR can also do other weird stuff. So here, again, maybe it just says, hey, there's Rob. And over there, there's Greg. Oh, and yeah, there's Eric. And, you, know, I'm fine. you know, he could overwhelm you with information. If it started identifying everybody that you walk past all the time, it would become really frustrating and really annoying. We also know, however, that technologies don't exist just to identify our friends. They do other things, too. So again, imagine now that I'm in this, back in this scene, and it says, hey, are you hungry? You should go to Carl's. Carl's is good. Gets three stars or four or whatever. How about thirsty? Maybe you're thirsty. Cold soda there. Hmm? Your shirt, man. It's going nowhere. You should consider visiting there. But you could also get other things. You could get weird stuff, like you could get the ads interacting with, other, with themselves. So, yeah. Hey, nail polish. Your wife's birthday is coming up. This is the one she likes. Oh, thank you. So, so, again, AR has all these capabilities. Part of the technology part of it is to figure out what to do to actually make the compute work. There's an aesthetics part, which is, you know, so far all the glasses kind of suck. So can we get around that? But there's also, in addition to that, there's, some, there's a whole bunch of, we can, we've seen some examples of ethics issues that are buried in here. So there, there's different ways that you can approach this. So we, th this is a, a project that ARM is working with, with this Great Ormond Street Hospital in the UK. And this one does facial recognition. So there's a little camera and it does facial recognition and ARM marketing makes much, much, much better animation than I do. So, ooh, ooh, exciting. But anyway, the, the, the camera that does facial recognition sitting outside a hospital room, well, okay, lots of people do that. But the, the thing that this one does is that actually the facial recognition is physically contained on that camera. It never leaves the camera. So no one knows other than, you know, the camera is able to determine these people are allowed to go into this hospital room, these other people are not allowed to go into this hospital room, and it's able to make all those decisions on its own without ever letting the data leave the physical object. So these are the kinds of approaches that you need to think about in order to develop ethical type AI. You can also go and start designing for intelligence. So this was a, this was a talk that uh, Renee Cinemont gave at uh, AIDF last year. And so she was going through and saying, well, okay, we've got these accelerators and we've got chips and we've got mobile phones, but this whole business of system of systems allows us to start making some analyses and to, to start creating what amounts to artificial perception by expanding the frame of what we're looking at. Instead of being so narrowly focused, we can look bro more broadly. So we can look, for, for example, at how emerging functionality comes out of system and systems. So the system itself essentially represents the opportunity. So here's an example in medical space where there may be tangential data. So if I'm doing a study and I'm doing it on some sort of drug, I may discover that actually people are becoming addicted to this drug. Okay, that's interesting. How do I find that? I might be able to take a look at geographically that those people tend to be concentrated somewhere. Expand this group. Are these people who are addicted to this thing concentrated in these areas because of some particular medicine that they're taking or some particular therapy that they're happening? Or is it because there's you know, something actually physically different about where they're at. And these kinds of things are not even science fiction. Um, Kaiser ran one of these studies on the, the Bay Area, and they concluded that container 
the, the trucks driving to a container port, the diesel exhaust from these things, were causing a large number of lung problems in their hospitals located downwind from that container port. So that was instrumental in getting the laws changed on what kind of emission controls the trucks needed to drive there. So anyway, this kind of thing can be done. It, it currently takes huge amounts of money and lots of cleverness. Perhaps in the future it can be done more automatedly. All right, so where do we go from all this? Moore's law is slowing down. We're having trouble with all those atoms and transistors and so on, but there's still lots of potential ahead for innovation, lots of things we can do. We can confidently predict then that the smartphones of the future will continue to get smarter. Um, there's a random article that I wrote on the subject a while ago. And so that's it. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.